Well, good morning once again, everyone. It is good to be with you guys. Uh, I'm excited, um, nervous, and also very humbled to be uh, teaching your, God's Word this morning. Um, I told Victor as I was preparing this week and as he was preparing to leave to go to Tennessee, I said, you did this on purpose, didn't you? He was like, what do you mean? I was like, did you not read the chapter that you left me with? And it's on the end times. So, um, but I am excited because this has been a very humbling week for me in regards to the studying of, uh, and preparing for this passage. Um, and uh, yeah, but all that says, I would love to pray for us. I would love to stop and pray, and then we'll kind of begin to work through this passage together. So let's pray. Um, Lord God, we just come before you, and we just thank you yet for another day, and for another time for us as your body to be able to come together and to study your word. And Lord, I pray right now that as we dive into your word, that one, that I will just die to myself and that and let you speak through me. Um, Lord, and to that we as your people will truly stop and uh, open our hearts and our ears to what you have to say through your word. Uh, this passage is not one that we need to take lightly, um, but it's also one that can be very overwhelming and daunting as we read through it. So I just pray that again, that you'll just speak concisely to us through your word. Um, so that way as we uh, leave this place today, Lord, that we'll have a more solid foundation of what it means for us to watch and pray as the day draws nearer for your son to come back. Lord, I love you. We praise you for the way that you first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. But before we really turn our attention to Luke chapter 21, so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them up to Luke chapter 21. That's where we're going to be spending our time this morning. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 34 through 36. Um, you're, in, you're probably thinking, Josh, it's only three verses. Why are you so nervous? Well, you'll find out. So, um, but before we actually get into this, though, I would like to just stop and recap what Victor last taught on just really briefly. So last time Victor was, because last week we had the testimonies of the, the deacons that are now deacons, which is awesome. So Davis and uh, Davis Bragg and Larry Benton, so we thank you for their service. Um, but in Luke chapter 20, we, uh, Victor led us through a parable uh, of the wicked tenants. Um, and this parable, what this parable was about was about a vineyard owner who uh, established his vineyard and then he hired these tenants to come and work it for him. And he went away for a long time. And as harvest time came around for the vineyard, the owner sent several of his servants to go and to receive what was rightfully his, right? As the owner, he gets a percentage and a portion of what the harvest is. And so he sent three different servants to go and to receive his uh, percentage of the harvest. And what we saw is that the tenants that the owner hired were not uh, the, the greatest tenants of the world. Uh, they had wicked hearts. And every time he sent a servant to go and receive what was his, what did they do? Do y'all remember? Yeah, the first one, they saw him coming, they beat him and sent him away. The second one that he sent, they not only beat, but they shamefully beat him and then sent him away. And then the third time, they were like, man, when is this guy going to give up? I mean, we already beat the first two. Let's beat this guy and severely wound him and send him on his way. Thinking that that's going to get the owner's attention of like, hey, dude, we don't, we're not going to give you what you want. And so the owner is put in a very uh, unique situation. And he says, you know, I've sent three of my servants 
they've sent them all back beaten and wounded and shamefully wounded. Um, you know what? I'm going to send my son. Surely if I send my son, they're going to see that I am serious about what I want to receive. That's my possession, right? And so he sends his son thinking that, man, if I send my son who is who's my child, who has the authority, he, he has all authority that I give to him, surely they will receive him and give me what is mine. Well, the tenants, these wicked tenants, they see the son coming from a distance and uh, they say, man, this is the heir. This is the, this is the son of the vineyard owner. And instead of being respectful and, and honoring him, they're like, man, let's, you know what? If we kill this guy, we'll receive his inheritance. The vineyard will be truly ours. So they take him, they cast him out, and they kill him, the son of the vineyard owner. And so that's how Jesus ends the parable. And then he then turns his attention back to the audience and says, let me ask you this, what, what will the vineyard owner do in response to this? Will he not go and just put all the tenants away and, and destroy them and then to hire new tenants? Do y'all remember how the crowd responded? They're like, surely not. Surely he won't do that. And Jesus was just like, are you kidding me? Y'all completely missed the point of what I just told you. You see, Jesus, in, the, in this parable, the tenants are the people of Israel. And God, the Father, is the owner. And then the Son, who later be sent, was Jesus. And it puts on display the history and the, and the nature and the hearts of the wicked people of Israel throughout history in the Old Testament. Time and time again, God sent prophets to warn them. About how, they're, about how they were behaving, their heart conditions, and, and how God will bring judgment upon them. But yet, what do they do? They rebuked them. They turned them away. They beat them. They killed them. And so God says, you know what? Fine, enough's enough. I'm going to quit sending my servants. I'm going to send my son. Surely they'll respect him. And Jesus tells them this parable as a foretelling and a foreshadowing of what would ultimately happen to him only days later. Because you got to remember, in Luke chapter 19, 20, and 21, and going all the way to the end of the book of Luke, they are now in Jerusalem. The triumphal, uh, in, the triumphal entry has already happened. Jesus has been teaching in the synagogue. And so he's telling all these, he's telling this parable to the audience of the people of Israel so that way they can feel this warning about how they're behaving. And they completely missed it. Now, I wanted to recap that though because what we look at in chapter 20, and as we begin to look at chapter 21, I feel like it serves not only as a warning to the intended audience in which Jesus was telling it to, but also a warning for us as God's people today and how we act. A few weeks or a few months ago now, we've actually did a study on the two greatest commandments, right? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And we were challenged by that of how we are to live our daily lives. Are we truly loving God first with everything we have? And then are we truly loving our neighbor out of the overflow of the love that we truly have for God? That was a convicting series because many believers today, we are, we're not loving well. We're not fulfilling what God's called us to do. But all that to say is that that parable serves as a warning for us, especially as we go into what we look at today, because we, much like the audience at the time, have a tendency to be, have wicked hearts. And 
And if we don't recognize that, then what we are studying today, we're going to miss it. And that's exactly what Jesus is trying to warn us about today in verses 34 through 36. But I do want to say this real quick as before we read the actual passage is that this is probably one of the most debated passages in the entire New Testament. Actually, this chapter is one of the most debated chapters in the entire New Testament because of what the content which is dealing with. And this particular passage is called the Olivet Discourse. This is a discourse that's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Matthew, if you were to read them all, Matthew is the most descriptive of the three. Um, but what we see is that Matthew and Mark's account of this is actually spoken to the Jews, whereas Luke's account, if you remember the audience, he's actually speaking to the Gentiles. So that's why you don't see as much detail in Luke's account. But all that to say, though, is that it's called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus was teaching this to the disciples on the Mount of Olives. Oh, yeah. Mind blown, right? But the reason why this passage is so highly debated is due to the rich nature or prophetic language that Jesus spoke to the disciples regarding the last days. It's full of apocalyptic language and Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled by one final fulfillment. So it's an absolutely beautiful yet complex and overwhelming passage if you're not ready to read it. You have to prepare yourself to read this passage. And so my prayer for us this morning is, as, as Kent Hughes says, one of the commentators I read this week, he says that uh, it is my prayer that we all approach this with great humility and willingness, that's the key thing, willingness to admit that we will not and do not have all the answers. I know many of you in this room would be glad to be in my position right now to talk about the end times because y'all love it so much. But even the most knowledgeable person on the end times does not have all the answers. Not even the son of man knows when he's coming back. Only the father, which we'll look at in just a little bit. So, but I am excited and humbled to be able to walk through this passage with you guys. So let's read this together. If you guys would like to stand with me, we're going to read verses 34 through 36. Picking up verse 34, it says... But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. You guys may be seated. I'd like to pray for us one more time as we get going. Father, again, we just ask that you lead us during this time, that you'll just truly speak and prepare our hearts for what we are about to study. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we read these verses, you're probably like, Josh, what's the big deal? Man, these verses don't seem very powerful or anything like that. Uh, nothing crazy apocalyptic about these. But what I would love to do with the remainder of our time is actually to walk through these three verses and I want to reference back to what Jesus is actually saying in this chapter, in Luke 21. But before we look at that though, I would love to make a quick note about how I mentioned how this discourse is found in Matthew and Mark as well as Luke. And I would love to show you how those two accounts of Matthew and Mark open up this dialogue or this discourse. They both say along these lines, but concerning the day and hour, no one knows, 
not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. That's how they both open it up. And then they go into the rest of what we just read. So again, when it comes to the things in which we're about to study, the only one who knows about every little detail that will happen is the father. So that will come into play in just a little bit. But the first thing that I would love for us to look at though is verse 34, where it says, but watch yourselves lest your father, or sorry, watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down. And as we read that, I want us to, to bring to light what exactly Jesus is talking about there. Because then he goes on to list three different things, right? He, he lists dissipation, drunkenness, and cares of life. So he says, but watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with these things. And in general, you can encompass that with the, the cares of this life, the things of this earth. If you're not careful and you are, and you are deceived by the things of this world, you're going to, your heart is going to be weighed down. You're going to be overwhelmed. And Jesus says, if you're not preparing yourself and you're not watching and you're not praying against these things, these things will come to you. And I don't know about you guys. I don't know where any of you guys are at right now spiritually. But I know even for me personally, I've been weighed down recently. It doesn't take much to be weighed down in this world right now. All you have to do is look around you and you see all the turmoil and all the chaos and the catastrophic things that are happening. It's easy to be overwhelmed by those things. And if you feel like it's not, then you're lying to yourself. But Jesus says, but watch yourselves. And then he says, uh, later on, that the way that we do this is by praying. But this, this idea, though, of, dis uh, of, of watching yourselves against these three things, dissipation, drunkenness, and cares of life, is to be on guard. And in the CSB, it says, be on guard so that your minds are not dulled from corrosing drunkenness or worries of life. And just to define what these words mean, so dissipation... And, and corrosing, dissipation is the squandering of money, resources, or energy. So you're literally just giving yourself away to these things without regard of what is best. And then corrosing, the activity of drinking alcohol and enjoying oneself with others in a noisy, lively way. And again, this is this idea of you have no regard for what is best for yourself. You're just living your life away. In the moment, which is what the world is telling us to do. Eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. But Jesus says, watch, watch, lest your hearts be weighed down. And we see a glimpse of this even going back throughout the chapter. We see uh, in verses 5 through 9, if you guys have read this chapter, is the Jesus foretelling the destruction of the temple. So now he turns his attention, uh, he turns his attention to, his, to his disciples and as they were teaching in the synagogue, they were leaving and the disciples looked back and like, man, Jesus, look at this temple. Isn't it amazing? Look at how beautifully constructed it has been and how, it, how it's been built. Isn't it awesome? And Jesus, though he sees how beautiful the temple is, he realizes that the disciples, what they're doing is that they're paying attention to the physical things and they're not paying attention to the spiritual things. Because again, for the Jews at this time, for the temple to be constructed, it was a monumental thing. When the, when the temple was finished being built, that was when the son of man was supposed to come and to establish his kingdom and to overthrow the Romans. 
And so as this temple was being, it was, it was getting closer and closer to being finished, they were getting so excited. They were like, man, look how beautiful this thing is. And Jesus says, he turns and looks at him and he says this, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will, be, uh, that will not be thrown down. So as the disciples are looking at this temple and they're really excited about what they're seeing, Jesus says, hey, don't put your hope in that because there will be a day where this thing will be destroyed and not a stone will be left on another. How many of you guys put your hope and faith and trust in things that, are, that you can see? Whether it's money, relationships, family, your physical possessions, your home, your land, your property, your, your guns, right? But Jesus says there will be a day when the Son of Man will come and these things will not be left. They will be taken away from you. And the only thing left would be you standing before the Son of Man giving account for how you lived your life. So for the disciples, this was gut-wrenching. And then they go on and they were like, wait, Jesus, are you serious? Then what do we need to do? When is this day coming? And Jesus then goes on in verses 10 through, uh, the, through 19. And then he then begins to foretell this, this season of wars and persecution and famines and things that were going to come upon the earth. And how uh, nation will rise against nation, as it says there, verse 10, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. And many of you guys are like, yeah, those things are happening right now. You're right. They are happening right now and they will continue to happen until the Son of Man returns. And he goes on in verse 12, it says, but before all, this will, uh, before all of this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. So not only are we going to see these great catastrophic events, but then man is going to turn on the church. Man is going to turn on the followers of Jesus. And they're going to lay their hands on us and they're going to persecute us because of our faith because of the name in which we proclaim Jesus, because it's so offensive. Now, some of you guys are like, well, that's already starting to happen. Well, it's been happening for centuries. The name of Jesus, like I said, it's offensive. There's been great persecutions and tribulations against the church for, throughout our history. But yet the word of God never fails and it stands firm. So again, I, I, I encourage us as we look at these things, like, yes, Jesus tells us to watch lest our hearts be weighed down. And one aspect of that is to watch from the things, of, watch against the things of this world, the things of which are being told to us, the things of which are being tossed at us, the things that are, they're saying are going to bring you great joy in this life. But Jesus is also saying, watch for these signs, but don't let these signs weigh you down. These things have to take place. They will take place. And there's nothing you can do about it. So he says, watch, because the time will come. And he says, pray, because that's the only way you'll be able to get through it, which we'll look at here in just a little bit. But these things in which Jesus is saying and, and he's telling them, they're not to our surprise now. To the disciples, they were probably a little bit more worried and anxious about it. 
But I also want to read to you Matthew 10, 16 through 22, where Jesus, this is Jesus already communicating to his disciples about the coming persecution in which they'll face. It says, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men. For they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them in the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say for you. What you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it, will not, for it is not you who speak, but the spirit of the father speaking through you. Brother will be delivered over to brother to death. And the father, his child, children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But, listen to how this ends. But to the one who endures to the end will be what? Saved. We are called to endurance. We are to watch. We are to endure what is to come through prayer. And Jesus goes on, even in here in Luke 21 and verse 13, he says, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how you are to answer. For I will give, to, for I will give you a mouth in wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Amen, right? Now, that's not talking about today, okay? That's not talking about, man, when you leave and you reach your adversary, the spirit of the Lord is gonna give you the things to say that you don't need to prepare for. Sorry, I said that really fast. But we, what he is referencing is the future time when great persecution and tribulation will come upon the church. When the enemies come against us, we don't need to be worried or anxious about what we are to say. Because the spirit of the living God who sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, not only to die, but to rise again, establishing this New Testament covenant where we now find salvation lives within us. I don't know about y'all, I would rather rely on the spirit to give me the words to say than to rely on Josh's words. Because my, my tongue has a tendency to get me in trouble. Thank you, Miss Virgie. <laughs> so he says, do not, he says, do not meditate beforehand how you are to answer for I'll give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. That's beautiful, right? And so, and then also what Paul will later say in 2 Timothy 4, 5, he says, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Granted, Paul's talking to Timothy, but for anybody, I'm just gonna tell you this, there are some who are called to be, to be pastors and teachers and evangelists. But if you are bearing the name of Jesus, you are an evangelist. You are, an, you are a missionary. You are the hands and feet of Jesus. You are the gospel bearers. Do not be ashamed of that. Do not be afraid of that. Fulfill your ministry. Again, watch lest your hearts be weighed down. You know these things are coming. Don't be anxious about them. Don't be, worried. Don't be nervous about them. But also at the same time, we need to watch and make sure that we're not giving in to the pleasures of this world. Does that make sense? 
And the next thing that he covers in this passage, I don't want to hit on too terribly much, is the destruction of Jerusalem. So he talks about the destruction of the temple, wars and persecution and great famines that will take place. And then he talks about the destruction of Jerusalem and how there will be a time where uh, this nation will come around Jerusalem and it's going to be a very chaotic time. And just listen to the words that he says here. He says, um, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that it is desolate, that its desolation has come near. Then that those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let none, or let not those who are inside, or yeah, let those in the city um, depart and let not those who are out of the country enter into it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill as it is written. So Jesus is now saying, the destruction of Jerusalem is going to be fulfilled because this is, this is an Old Testament prophet from old. This is something that God had already talked about, how there will be a day where Jerusalem will be judged. And so this is that being fulfilled here in this moment. But the thing about this passage so far that I, I, was really intriguing to me when I was reading it is that in all of, when you look at, if you were to go back and read Matthew's account, Mark's account, and then read Luke's account, What's unique about it is this, is that when you look at them as a whole and you look at the intended audience which Jesus is talking to and how we should approach this passage, it's, it's, he's talking to the generations of old and he's also talking to our generation. And the way this is broken down is that when you look at Matthew and Mark, he, you get this account that he's talking about futuristic trials and persecution to come. Whereas when you read the accounts of Luke, he's talking about the generations of old. Everything in which he's talking about here has actually already been fulfilled. You guys ever thought about that? In the time of AD 70, when the destruction of the temple occurred and when the destruction of Jerusalem happened. AD 70, both these events happened. Around the time of Passover of that year, of April of that year, Roman general Titus besieged Jerusalem, not allowing anyone to leave. But because it was Passover, he wouldn't let anybody leave, but he was like, hey, if you're coming for Passover, come on, enter into the city. So he let the, the pilgrims come into the city to celebrate. While in the meantime, he saw this as an opportunity to strategically cut off food supply and water supply to the city. So this time of Passover, which was supposed to be a celebration of remembrance of our Messiah, turned into one of the most chaotic and, and, and violent scenes because what happens is, like I said, he would not let anybody leave the city, but he would let people enter in. So as the food supply ran out and as the water supply ran out, they started to turn on each other in the city. There was, there was riots, there was fighting, there was even cannibalism going on in the city because of how hungry they were and how thirsty they were and how uh, desperate they were. And then come August that same year, the Romans would eventually breach the final defenses of the city and would massacre many that were left and ultimately destroy the second temple. And those who they did not massacre, they would ultimately send off to Egypt to work in the salt mines. So what we see here is that in AD 70, this ultimately fulfills everything that we're reading about in Luke chapter 21 and ultimately what we read about in Hosea chapter 9. So I would challenge you guys to go back, read Hosea chapter nine, because it foretells the coming destruction of Jerusalem in the temple for the nation of Israel. 
So again, when we think about the audience in which Jesus is talking to, he's not only just talking to us as the current church, but he's also at that time in this chapter, he was speaking to the literal generations who would face these things. So it puts a whole new frame of reference for this audience and for the disciples because the disciples experienced it. But we have the great privilege, church, and this is where I want to make the distinction. We have the great privilege of being on the latter side of this event, which Lucas is talking about. Yes, there will be a future day where the Son of Man will return, and it's going to be chaotic, and we're fixing to look at that. But we as a church can stand confident knowing that we are already victorious. The disciples at the time, they didn't know that. The church, the early church who experienced these great persecutions, they didn't know that. So again, as we, as we think about these times that are approaching, and as we look at the signs and as we see things happening, we don't need to take it as a literal, like, oh my gosh, the whole world is going to end. Well, the world's been ending since the beginning. So why are we surprised? But rather, we need to look at this as an opportunity when we see these signs as an opportunity for us as evangelists, as us, as those who are doing God's work to go and to be the light into the darkness, to fulfill the great commission, to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Behold, he was with you always. So why are we afraid? It makes me sad, and I'm going to get on a soapbox for just a second. It makes me sad when I hear about people stockpiling. And I'm sorry if I'm stepping on toes. People who stockpile. Um, and I can't really say a whole lot because I was the one back in 2020 when the ammo shortage started happening. Uh, yeah, I ran, I got me some nine millimeter ammo. I did. So I can't really say a whole lot. But it, it makes me sad because it means that we are putting our hope and our trust in the things of this world rather than in the things that are eternal when we do that. Again, Jesus is telling us that we're going to face hardship, that we're going to face persecution, that we're going to face these times of, of tribulation. Why are we surprised when it actually comes? We can read this passage and think like, man, praise God that we're going to be okay because we're already victorious. But man, when it comes to actually hitting the ground running and it's starting to happen, it's like, Jesus who? I'm only worried about myself. But he goes on to verse 35. And it says, For it will come a time, it says, For it will come upon us and dwell on the face of the whole earth. So, in, in essence, what Jesus is saying here is that no one's going to escape this time. We're all going to face it. Whether it's the literal end times or if it's the temporary tribulations that will come, we're going to face these things. So, don't be surprised by them. And he goes on in verses 25 through 28, and he describes this glorious picture of the coming of the Son of Man. And there will be signs in the sun and the moons and the stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring sea and the waves, people fainting with fear, with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud and the power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Guys, let me tell you something. When those things start to happen, that's when we really need to be ready. 
In other words, these signs and warnings in which we see leading up to that day, they're nothing compared to that day. And it's going to be blatantly obvious when it happens because the heavens are going to shake. The sun and the stars are going to be speaking to us. It's going to be this monumental, I mean, you can't miss it. That's what I'm trying to say. So again, when we think about in light of that coming day to these other signs and things that are happening, why are we so focused on these things when we can be looking forward to this day? And you guys are probably thinking, Josh, why are we looking forward to this day? Well, because it goes on and it says um, in verse 36, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the son of man. In other words, he says, for those of us who are in Christ, guess what? On that day, when it happens, you're already victorious. You don't have to worry about the wrath of God that's coming upon the face of the earth. The only ones who have to worry about it are those who are standing as the enemy of the cross. So again, when we're living through these days, why are we so worried about these signs that are meaningless or these tribulations that, yes, though they may be hard to walk through in the moment, but when it comes to eternity, are nothing. When we could be looking forward to the day when the Son of Man comes and he establishes his kingdom forevermore. We could have hope and faith and trust in that and not in the things of this earth. So stay awake at all times praying. And that is the, the biggest and the, the, most, the most powerful thing that, I can, that we can be encouraged by in this passage today. It says, but watch yourselves, let your hearts be weighed down. But stay awake at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things. It's only through our prayers that we are able to have the strength to face these things. Because when we pray, guess what? We're relying on the one who gives us strength. That's the Holy Spirit within us. I'm just going to wrap up with this in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. It says, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for, the day, uh, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you, are all for you are all children of light, children of the day. As, for, as John talks about in 1 John, we, uh, as God is in the, or for, oh my goodness, my mind just went blank. Um, okay, I'm just gonna keep reading. Here we go. Um, It'll, it'll come back to me here in a second. But it says, for you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night of the darkness. So let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet of hope of salvation. For God is not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Get that. Whether we are awake or whether we are asleep. So whether we are here or whether we are not here when these times come, we can have faith and hope in Christ. Therefore, encourage one another 
and build one another up just as you are doing. As we wrap up and as we conclude, um, worship band, y'all can come up. Um, I just want to wrap up with this. I know this is a lot to take in. And again, I know that I don't have all the answers and some of you guys probably don't agree with everything I just said, and that's totally fine. I would love to have a conversation with you after because I want to be sanctified. And I, want to have, I want to have a fresh perspective as well. I want to grow in this. But at the end of the day, what I want us to take away from this passage is this. The end times are, gonna, the end times are really confusing. No one knows the day. No one knows the hour. Only the Father, like we said. And it's going to come like a thief in the night. But until that day comes, one thing is for sure, we are commanded to watch. We are commanded to watch ourselves, lest our hearts be weighed down. We don't need to be sitting on the sidelines. We don't need to be sitting on our, in our lazy boys, acting like nothing's happening. We need to be watchful and mindful of the day in which Christ will return. And we need to be prepared for that day. We need to be on guard against that. As Paul talks about, we need to put on the full armor of God every single day so that way when the fiery arrows of the evil one come against us, they will be extinguished. Because at the end of the day, Satan would rather us be distracted by the things of this world, which would also include the signs of this world, all the natural disasters, the, the rioting, the whatever wars and persecution are happening. He would rather us be distracted by that. So that way behind the scene, he's working in the hearts of man and he is deceiving many. But rather if we're watching and praying, when we're watching these things, when we're praying against these things, Satan has no foothold. When we're on guard, he has nothing that, he, I, mean, I mean, when we're on guard against these things, he has nothing to grab onto. And when we're watching and praying and we're living out the commission which the Lord Jesus gave us to go and make disciples of all nations, there's nothing to worry about. There's nothing to fret about. Again, for those of us who are in Christ, we're already sealed by the Holy Spirit. We're already victorious. So why be worried? Why be weighed down by the things of this world? I don't know where you guys are at. I don't know. I mean, spiritually, I don't know what's going on in your hearts. But if there's anyone here today who has questions about where they're going to be spending eternity, because again, the day is going to come like a thief in the night. They could come today and come a hundred years from now. No one knows. But one thing is for sure is that we can have the assurance of the eternal life that we have in Christ Jesus. And if you don't have that, I pray that you'll find that today. It's a free gift. You have to do nothing. You don't, I mean, you don't deserve it. You don't gain it. You don't, all you, all you do is receive it. It's a gift. So why not receive it, right? Um, but if there's anything else, I mean, but if you guys have anything heavy on your hearts or anything like that, as we go into this time of invitation, if you want to come and pray and lay it down on the altar, do that. But um, I pray that you'll really just surrender it all though. Um, that we would take full advantage of every opportunity that we have today as it is today in the ministry in which we're called to in Christ Jesus. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we just come before you and we thank you, Father, for the way you first loved us and the way that you work and the way that you um, ultimately sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins 
So that way, when we do think about the future glory that we can have in Christ Jesus, um, we don't have to worry about the things that precede it, the tribulations, the, the, the wars, the persecutions that are promised because those of us who are in Christ, we are sealed. We are victorious. We, we already have hope. But Lord, there's so many who are out there living as enemies of the cross, who are living their own lives, who are refusing you daily. And their ultimate end is destruction. Their ultimate end is eternal separation from you. And I pray, God, there's anyone in this room today who does not have a relationship with you and um, they are living for themselves right now, Lord, that you will work in their hearts and they will come to know you. But Lord, again, we just, we, we thank you for the finished work of the cross. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. We thank you for the assurance that we have. And we just, I just pray, Lord, that uh, we will just continue to cling to that day in and day out. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. This is a ministry of First Baptist Church located at 1700 Milam Street, Columbus, Texas.